So I wanted, to, I wanted to kind of open up. So basically, for those of you that are visiting or visiting with family and those kind of things, what we want to do over the next few weeks, kind of as we're transitioning to the building, we've been growing really exponentially over the past few months. And, and like as Austin said, uh, to think of that picture that was just like about, <laughs> I don't know, it was like I don't know, it was 11 adults, I think, just kind of standing here uh, for a picture um, for that very first Sunday. Uh, that I think it was Nate. I know Nate's not with us today, but his mom was here that first Sunday. And so she took the picture for us. So it was awesome. Uh, and so, um, but it's, it's amazing to think what God has already done. And we're excited about what he's going to do. Um, and so what we're doing kind of is really peeling back the curtain. For those of you that are visiting, you're going to kind of see a little bit of the, the back, the behind the scenes picture of what we believe and why uh, we um, pursue these things and what is important to us. Because basically we're saying is if we want to be a church that reaches the community, for one, membership is important. The, the importance of knowing who are, who are we and what do we believe and are we really followers of Jesus. If we're saying our mission is to joyfully follow Jesus and make Him known, we've got to make sure that the people are on board with that mission, that people are on board with actually following Jesus, following His commands, following Scripture. And uh, making him known, making disciples of all nations. And it starts here, right in our little Jerusalem, right around us. And so that's why we're doing what we're doing. And I'm going to kind of go through this quickly. So it's not really a sermon, it's more of teaching, um, I would say. But uh, one of the books I read several, several years ago, simple <laughs> title, The Gospel, uh, by Ray Ortland, uh, in a series with nine marks that wrote a lot of different books. And uh, there's this one highlight I had. I was just looking at it, browsing through it earlier this week. And came across this highlight that I had marked in there. And it's just such a profound, uh, I think, a statement for us as we're thinking about, you know, planting a church, reaching a community, being on the same page. And what are we for? He says this in, in this quote. He says, when the doctrine is clear and the culture is beautiful, the church will be powerful. It's like when the, when the doctrine is clear, when the, when the doctrine is clear and the culture is beautiful, the church will be powerful. Uh, later on, he goes on to say is this. He says, truth without grace is harsh and ugly, but grace without truth is sentimental and cowardly. Um, I think both of those statements really encapsulate the importance of why, why even do we talk about the Bible? Why do we use the Bible as our source of life? Why do we look at it for what's our guide in life and in death? Like what, why, do we, why do we care so much about why, uh, who Jesus is and what he claimed to be? Why do we care that there's a triune God? Why do we care about these things? Again, it goes back to what he's saying here is this, is doctrine matters. But also you have to understand too that truth matters. Truth is, is essential. You have to have truth. Uh, but you can't just take truth and just keep it by itself without culture, as he's, as he's kind of putting. Or, as in the words of John chapter 1, verse 14, when the description of Jesus. Here's who Jesus is in John 1, 14. As, as uh, Jesus comes and he takes on human flesh, and this great uh, opening uh, statements from John in John 1. In John 1, 14, in his description of Jesus, he said this. He's full of grace and truth. He's both. And he's the only person who's ever lived this life perfectly full of grace and truth. When you read the Gospels, you see that over and over again. You see the beauty of who Jesus is, that he would speak so lovingly and caringly and, and, and so carefully with people. And he would care for their hearts, and he would, but he would also speak truth. And he would go in, and what did he do? He, he cast out uh, the money changers and turns over the tables. Why? Because truth matters. But he does that in grace, too, because this, this is the temple. This is not where this should belong. This is not where it should be. Uh, when he deals with the adulterous woman, how does he treat her? Does he treat her just harshly like the Pharisees wanted to do and just kick her out? No, he speaks truth. Go and sin no more. 
but he also lovingly accepts her as well. You, you see the perfect balance. And it's not like it's a, it's a like some days you're 100% truth and then some days you're 100% grace and it's a mixture. It's all the time, all day. And Jesus is the only one who's perfectly done this. But, you know, most likely everyone in this room leans one way more than the other, right? Grace people are great to be around. If you're around the grace people, those are the ones you want, kind of want to be around sometimes, right? Like, because they don't stir the pot. They don't usually offend. Oftentimes they accept people as they are, but don't. But here's the problem with that. They, there's, that's great. And you're like, man, put me around those people. They love me. They're, they're going to just approve of everything I do. They're going to be like my greatest cheerleader. But what happens, right? But they don't help people help them become who they should be. Because they don't want to offend them. They don't, want to, they don't want to stir the pot. They don't want to make an issue. They don't, want to, like, they don't want to lose that friendship or something like that. And so they won't speak the truth in there. Truth people have strong convictions and standards, right? They're passionate about the right things. They're willing to make the difficult decisions. But oftentimes, sometimes it's done in very unloving ways. It's just like, hey, truth matters. And they're just going to tell you what it is no matter what. And they don't care how you receive it, how, how it happens, because they want to just get the truth right. And the reality is we want both. We want full of grace and truth. And so when we talk about a church and starting a church, we want to make sure that we're, we're creating a culture of people who love the Lord passionately, who, who care deeply about truth, who care about doctrine, who care about the truths of Scripture, but also cares about people in a way that is gracious and kind and loving, that it's a culture of acceptance and grace, but not acceptance to leave someone where they are, but to help them and guide them Remember, that's kind of going back to our, our uh, mission. Help people joyfully follow Jesus and make them known. You're probably not going to help somebody by just beating them down with truth. You're going to help them by graciously helping them see truth and guide them uh, towards that truth. And so you say, like, why, is all does this, why does all this matter? I think it desperately matters because there's plenty of churches who uh, have great culture. It's awesome. It's a fun place to be. But their truth is so far off then the people are being led astray. I mean, Paul warned this all the way back in uh, for the first generation of churches at Timothy. Man, there's going to be people who are going to be tickled in their ears. They're going to they're want to hear. They're going to like what they're hearing, but they're not going to hear truth. They're going to be guided in a different direction. So I want to look at these few things. So if you have notes there, it's kind of like a, almost like a little lecture. So I'll try to do my best to not make it too much of a lecture, but we're going to walk through it. Uh, together. So looking at some of our core values and some of those things we looked at last week, now specifically just to what we believe about scripture, salvation, uh, and the ordinances of the church this week. So let's look at this together. So if you have your notes there in front of you, we're looking first at the, at the Bible. First one is this, we, what we believe is the Bible is inspired by God. It is inspired by God. What does that mean? If you turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, uh, 16 and 17, or verse 16 specifically on this one. But the Bible, we, we say, is inspired. Well, what does that mean? And literally it means God breathed, God spoken. The Spirit of God speaks what God's Word is. So when we say, what is the Bible? When we say, hey, this is God's Word, we're not saying this is a bunch of man's words that, that people were like, you know what, I think it'd be good. The disciples and others, and, and you got Moses and, other, and David and Solomon and some of the ones who write our scriptures. We say like, oh, that was just man's word. They, they thought these things, God kind of guided them. No, we say it is literally God's word. He breathed it into existence. What he wanted written in the original languages, what he wanted came from specifically God. It's God-inspired. It's God-breathed. Look at uh, 2 Timothy 3, uh, verse 16. It says, All Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God 
and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We believe it is inspired by God. It is coming from God. If you look at First Peter or Second Peter chapter one, in Second Peter chapter one, verse twenty. Uh, it says this, you don't have to turn there necessarily, but it says this, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. That God's Word doesn't come to us through someone else's interpretation, like, like uh, uh, a priest, say, for instance, in Europe, and they're like, hey, here's what God's Word is, and they, they tell you what God's Word actually is. No, he's saying no, no prophet, no one is not someone's own interp- interpretation. Verse 21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So those two verses right there are two essentials to, to know and to be able to point to. When, when someone starts questioning Scripture and, and, and its validity and those kind of things, or is God's Word real? Is it, is it actually God's Word? These are two key verses that you need to know. Um, I had heard recently, and this is when you say, well, why is this important? Like, I would want every church member, every person to understand where, where the Bible comes from, that it comes from God. Um, and I would, be able to, I would hope that like you would be able to say, you know, 2 Corinthians, I mean, 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, be able to point to those verses and to show people. But here's the reality. I was the, the church that uh, at Calvary I left, I was talking to our pastor not to, just a couple weeks ago, and he was telling me how um, they had some candidates. They're still, they're still in the process for candidates and in, in looking for replacement for our high school ministry that I served in and our middle school ministry. And they had candidates there and they interviewed them. And like I've, I've, some of you have heard, those interviews are grueling and terrifying. Uh, I experienced it and I never want to experience it again. Uh, but in that interview, because they value God's word, they value, they, they value truth and they value, they value culture and they want to make sure it's the right fit. <clears throat> and so when they interviewed this, this candidate who's a, a pastor somewhere else, I don't I'm gonna name his name, I don't even know his name, um, but they asked him, like, okay, what do you believe about scriptures? And, and what could you point to to help us understand your, your view on scripture? The guy just stood there with a blank stare. He didn't know. He didn't know where 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is. He didn't know 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. He didn't know, hey, like, hey, just point to some scripture. All scripture is breathed out by God. It comes from God. This truth, these truths matter. And so first, the Bible is inspired by God. Second is this. What we believe also about scripture is that the Bible is inerrant. Meaning is within, and when we say this, specifically we say this in the original languages. We understand that translations and, and pulling in translations and turning it to other languages, there might be a little bit of like what we'd say um, not errors in, um, more of like format type of errors or translation kind of like it's lost a little bit in translation. Um, what we say is that in the original languages, as it was written and put down on, on scrolls and on paper and papyrus, that it was written and it is completely without error. Um, Josh McDowell, who's done a good bit of work on, uh, really he was led to the Lord in a search trying to prove and write a paper in college to prove against the validity of Scripture. And so he pulled a ton of research together and quickly became a believer during that process. Why? <laughs> because he started learning, man, that pretty much as he wrote this long, this really massive book, some of you maybe have heard of it, it's, uh, The Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And in that book, it's, I mean, it's seriously, it's like a textbook about this big, about this thick, and it is just full of looking at the evidence of manuscripts and seeing that. He's basically saying, like, after all the study, after all the research, I can pretty much point to 99.9% accuracy that what we have is what was said uh, by God. And so you'd say, well, why? How do we know these things? 
Well, Jesus, even while he was on earth, okay, he points to the validity of the Old Testament. How often did Jesus quote Scripture? He pointed to the Old Testament. He would, he would speak on David and he would quote David. He would quote Moses. He would point to Abraham. He confirmed already what people knew, that it was God's Word, and he used God's Word in that way. Uh, Psalm 119, 160. Uh, or, or did I put 160? Um, yeah, Psalm 119. That's not right then. Um, I don't think. Uh, I'm trying to remember, but in, in Psalm 119, hopefully I can find it because I think I put it down in your notes wrong. Um, Psalm 119, uh, throughout Scripture, exactly, he says over and over again, uh, your law is my delight, over and over again. But in uh, Psalm 119, in 160, it says, the sum of your word, so it is right, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Every one of your righteous rules endures forever. The sum of your word is truth. I mean, again, God's word is truth. It's without error. And then really that gets us to our our last point in a second. But number three is this. I think this is really important. This is important, I think, for all of us. I think this is important for parents too. um, Because it's easy uh, to, like my wife upstairs, uh, to just teach the kids a Bible story. Here, let let me tell you about Gideon and how awesome he is. And kind of like treat it like superheroes. Uh, I've seen some of those kids' Bibles, and it's like, you know, Samson is just massively ripped, and you're like, man, look at this superhero. And then there's Gideon, who did all these great things, and then there's this, this amazing woman named Deborah, who did all these great things. And, and you look at these stories, and there's David and Goliath, and him just, just killing this giant. And you're like, man, you can slay any giant uh, if you'll just put some effort into it, or you'll just trust God, you can slay any giant kind of thing. We can take all these things. But Scripture, and this is what I wanted to point here, is the Bible is Christ-centered. It is Christ-centered. It is all about Christ. Scripture is pointing us to who Christ is, who Jesus is, who is the Son of God. I mean, the Old Testament, when you go to the Old Testament, the Old Testament um, anticipates Christ. So that's the next point there. The Old Testament anticipates Christ. It is looking to Christ. It is looking forward to the Savior of the world. And in the New Testament, we get... The New Testament explains Christ. Paul writes the scriptures and he's like, here's who Christ is. The Gospels are trying to help you see who is the Son of God? Who is this this one who came? See, the Old Testament anticipates Christ. The New Testament explains Christ. And so you'll see here a quote from Bruce Ware. He says this, For although the Spirit is primarily responsible for producing the Bible as the inspired Word of God, as we were seeing uh, in 2 Timothy 3, He says this, the Bible is not primarily about the Spirit, but rather it is about the Son. It is about Christ. The Scriptures, all the Scriptures are pointing us. It's a redemptive story. When you think of the storyline of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, it is the redemptive story of creation. God creates a world and man sins. And then now it's this pursuit, God's pursuit of redeeming what was broken in the garden and God's pursuing of people and mankind through His son. Uh, and so, man, over and over again, the scriptures are, we, we want to make sure, and we make sure, we put an emphasis on this. The Bible is Christ-centered. We want to preach Christ and Him we proclaim. Uh, number four, the Bible is reliable. Because it is inspired, we're saying it comes from God. We're saying because it's from God, it's, it's without error, because we're saying God is truth. There's, God cannot lie. There's over and over scripture of that. So if we're saying it comes from God, we're saying that because it comes from God, it's inerrant, then the reality is this, is the Bible is therefore reliable as the final authority for faith and life. 
Uh, back to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, scripture tells, it says this, All scripture is breathed out by God. And notice what it says. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, equipped. Notice this, equipped for every good work. It is fully reliable as the final authority uh, for faith and life. Like, this is what you need. We need scripture. We don't need the Watchtower. We don't need the Book of Mormon. We don't need other commands outside of Scripture to guide us. We have Scripture, and it's all we need for faith and life. I love the psalmist. He says, or, or right before that, the Bible should, notice this, should shape our beliefs and our lives or lifestyle. The Bible should shape it. Listen, here's the problem, right? We try to fit our lifestyle to Scripture. This is what you see in culture. This is what you see in culture. We try to fit it. So if our, our culture, the way we want to live, doesn't fit Scripture, we'll try to tweak Scripture. Or we'll only put a focus on one part of Scripture. And it's, it's like the person who, I forgot which one it was. I wasn't, didn't prepare that one. It just came to my head just now. But um, maybe Thomas Edison or Benjamin Franklin, one of the two, I think. I think it's Benjamin Franklin. Uh, who just basically had his Bible and he just started ripping out pages of his Bible. It's the parts he didn't like. So I don't want to attribute that to Benjamin Franklin just in case it wasn't him. So you can, Thomas Jefferson, thank you. Yes, exactly. I'm like, man, I don't want to give Benjamin Franklin a bad name because uh, I didn't remember. Uh, so yeah, Thomas Jefferson, there we go. We'll, we'll, we'll smear his name though, yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, so tearing out pages because he's like, no, I, I don't believe in this. I mean, it's like, here's this tattered Bible because you're like, no, I don't believe in these parts. But we're saying all scripture is inspired by God. So if you don't like something, deal with it with God because God says this is truth. Your word is truth. I mean, even he says that, uh, John 17, 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And so this should be what shapes the structure of our church, the way we function as believers, the way we live our lives. Scripture should be shaping our beliefs and our lifestyles. The problem with culture is that, and even so-called Christians, is that they've deviated from God's word and saying it's not really God's word. It's, it contains, this is, this is a phrase they use, contains God's word. But it's not that, what it means is, oh, I mean, there's parts of it that are God's word, but not all scripture. And so when you do that, you do that to make it work within what you want, right? And that's what churches are doing. Even churches are doing this to fit beliefs on on homosexuality, on, on different, all kinds of issues. We'll put these things in and say, oh, no, I mean, it's, 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 it's not really God's word. That was only for a time. That's not applicable today. But again, as we looked earlier, even at Psalm 119, uh, 160, it's, it's his word forever. It's, his, his, it's applicable forever, too. His word is the only one that will stand, Scripture also um, says. So John Wesley, I want to be, this is how I want to be. Uh, like Psalmist here in 119.97 says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And like John Wesley said, At any price, give me the book of God. Let me be a man of one book. So if we could just know, I mean, I, we were talking just the other night about Israel and, and a trip there and saying how this Jewish man and, and these guides I mean, just knew Scripture better than anybody on that trip. All these believers. It's like, man, I want to be as someone who knows God's Word. I mean, who meditates on it, who loves it, who preaches it, who, for you, who communicates it, whether it's in a small group or whether it's in the workplace or with individuals, family, in your home, as you help your kids see Christ in Scripture. Like I was saying earlier, I didn't emphasize that enough that I wanted to earlier. But when we talk about Christ, being, the Bible being Christ-centered, 
as you teach your children, as you, as you guide them, help them see Christ in the story of Noah and not just be like, hey, we should love all animals. <laughs> it's like, well, that's great. Let's love all animals. But only two of them, did, you know, per, per, not all of them were loved, right? And so, but we can, we can easily t- tell stories and, and, and kind of sentimentalize. Uh, um, I don't even know if there's a word. <laughs> I can't, I'm not even going to try to say it again. Um, you know, like we can just do these things and make these stories seem like all nice and, and beautiful. But let them see Christ in the story of Noah. That God was already redeeming a people and saving a people. Noah is a picture of Christ in the future. I mean, his family, why does his family end up on the boat? They don't deserve to be on the boat. Only Noah does. Just like us. Like we, we, because if we're connected to Christ, we get to experience salvation and freedom from Him. We see this throughout the New Testament. We see it throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. All of Scripture is of Christ, and it is reliable as the final authority for our faith and lives. So that's, we believe, about, about Scripture. There's a lot more there, I'm sure, but that's, we'll give you the high level at least. Salvation, moving on. Um, scripture tells us, 1 John 5, 13, says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know. I want, I want you to hear this verse. It's my assumption, not even assumption really, I've talked to several of you even, um, who maybe came to faith in an early age um, and still struggle with doubts and wondering like, man, am I really saved? Listen to this, listen to this verse. 1 John, he says, verse 5, Verse, chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So here's, what, here's our first point here as, you, as you're following in the notes. God wants us to know for sure that we have eternal life. God doesn't want to like leave you like dangling fruit and saying like, I mean, like, let's just see. And you're like, oh no, like I got to keep pursuing because I might not be saved. And oh no, like he wants you to know for sure. He gives us his spirit and he's saying, like, I'm going to give you myself. I'm going to give you God in the spirit indwelling you to confirm uh, this thing, these, these truths. If you really do believe in God. And so he's saying, hey, I write these things as John does. I write these things to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. God wants to know. God wants us to know for sure that we have eternal life. And so in order to join our church, you must first be a member of God's family. Uh, there, and then really there's some key issues that we must understand and believe if we are truly to be saved. So the number one is this. God created you and loves you. God created you and loves you. Going to 1 John, uh, such a great description. I mean, obviously we could go to John 3.16, for God so loved the world, right? We know that God loved us, but I love the description in 1 John. So if you want to turn there, you can. 1 John, uh, towards the, the very back of your Bible, um, after First and Second Peter, or yeah, right there. First John chapter 4, verse 9, he says this. <clears throat> in such a great description, starting in verse 7, really. But verse 9, In this the love of God was made manifest among us. Like, they visibly saw it. They experienced it. And he says that God sent His Son. How do we really know God? I mean, God says He loves us in the Old Testament. He tells us. He's like, I, lo- I love you. He chooses a people. And, and, and you notice in the Old Testament, the description of that. Why does he choose Israel? Oh, because they were nice. They, 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 were, they, were, they only wanted to worship one God. <laughs> no, that's not why. Uh, oh, they were, they were good. They were righteous. Nope, that wasn't either. He just chose them because of his own love. He's like, you're weak. The description of, of, of Israel and his, peop- and his people was going to become Israel. Like, they, they were... 
There was nothing about them that were pleasing, but God chose them because of His love, His mercy. And so even as uh, uh, Austin read that earlier, as we think of according to His mercy in in, uh, the psalm that he read earlier. But look what he says here. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God. Notice this, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And he says, Beloved, if, so, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Here's one great truth. God created you. He's the creator of the world. We learned this in Genesis all the way back in the garden. He, he creates man and He makes them in His image. He gives them this special connection to Him. Unlike all of other creation, rather than a tree and a squirrel and a rabbit, all these things, God creates man in His own image, in His own likeness. He created them, male and female, description tells us. And He has these people and they're meant to glorify Him and enjoy relationship with Him. But then as our next point says this, is all people are sinners. All people are sinners. All people. God created them. He has a design for their lives. He gives them. He says, here's how you're to live. You're to honor me. You're to worship me. You're to follow me. And not because it's like, man, why should I worship and honor this God? Because He deserves it. He's your creator. And we find out later He's our Savior. So, but the problem is, is man veered away from his design and said, oh, your design's great and all, but I want my own, life, own way of living. I want to pursue what I want to pursue. And so man does that. And then the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single person who's ever lived is a sinner. If you have kids, it is easy to know that you have sinners in your home. I mean, early. I mean, early, early. Uh, you know, you start to see it. You see the rebellion. You're like, you don't have to teach them how to be deceptive. or You, you don't have to teach them uh, to be selfish, right? Like, that comes very natural, <laughs> to be selfish. Uh, you have to teach them how to share. You have to teach them how to be kind and courteous and t- to be respectful. You have to teach them to do the right things because in their heart, in their nature, who they are from birth, they are a sinner. And so people are all sinners. Number three is this, the payment for sin is eternal death. The payment, and listen, here's, I've made this point a couple times over the past few weeks. There's only two ways to pay for our sin against a holy God. Only two ways. And you're like, wait, what's the two ways? One way is this. You can spend your eternity in hell apart from God, paying the price for your sin. But the problem is that's never fully paid. You just keep paying it. And you just keep paying it and keep paying it forever and ever. And the way that this hits home for me is to think that 2,000 years ago, Jesus uh, gives the story of Lazarus and how he has died and here he is in, uh, in hell and he's just asking for just a drop of water on his tongue. Think about that. That was written and said 2,000 years ago and there's an eternity still more of never getting quenched any goodness from God. None. Zero. Eternally separated from God. You can pay for it that way. You can just go ahead. Go to hell and just pay for your sin for all of eternity. Or there's a greater way. God has provided, provided an escape. And that's number four. God has provided an escape. Uh, Romans, uh, Romans obviously is our Romans road. It's a, it's a, a guide for us uh, in, in seeing how to follow Jesus and to put our faith in Jesus. But in Romans chapter 5, verse, uh, verse 8, uh, we get this description. Uh, I, love it. I, love the, I love this whole... I've, I memorized this a long, a long time ago. Uh, I was in a Bible club and we were like 
a quiz team. And it was like, I was given Romans 5 to memorize. I'm like, thank you for that. I'm so glad I, was, I memorized this, this chapter. But I didn't memorize it in the ESV. That's the problem. Um, but he says this, verse 6. For while we were still weak, I, I, mean, I want you to hear these words. Look, at, I, I've underlined and circled these. If you have your Bible open to this passage, I want you to see it. For while we were still weak. Listen to the description of people, mankind. Here's the first one, weak. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the, notice the next description of you, ungodly. Ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Like, right? Like, it's like where I would die for my children, but I'm not dying. I'm dying for you too, you know? (laughs) But like, I'm not dying for an enemy probably. I'm not like, man, I'm just going to willingly give my life for someone who hates me. I mean, like, no one scarcely die, he says here, uh, for uh, a friend or a, a loved one. Notice what he says. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still, next description of us, sinners, Christ died for us. The description of us is weak, ungodly sinners. Notice that all of this happens while you're still weak, ungodly, and a sinner. Do you see how it is all of grace? God's love for you, that he would die in your place, not after you cleaned yourself up and said, okay, God, I want to follow you. Boom, I'm going to die for you. I will do that for you now that you'll trust me and put your hope in me. While you were still weak, while you were ungodly, while you were a sinner, Christ died for us. He provides a way out because he's going to pay the price for your sin. Because again, there's only two ways to pay for your sin. You can spend eternity apart from him forever paying the price of your sin. Or you could put your trust and your faith in Christ. That's our number five here is this. Your part is to repent and believe the gospel. The gospel is that truth that we just read, that he died in your place. Uh, I think, I'm trying to remember who, who coined it first that I heard it, but basically if you're trying to describe what is the gospel, it's Jesus in my place. I mean, if you want to put it like as most simplest terms you could put it is Jesus in my place. He takes my place. He dies on the cross. He dies the death that I deserved. He paid the price that I should have paid. Um, he does these things for me. The gospel is very, very easily described in 1 Corinthians 15. We've looked at that on Thursdays for a while now, but in 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, and Paul giving us the description of the gospel. For I delivered to you as of first importance, verse 3, what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Notice the emphasis on the scriptures in this as well. Why does the scriptures matter? Why do we believe God's word? Because here's what he says. This is Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. The Old Testament said this is how he's going to die. This is what's, what's needed to happen. The Old Testament is pointing us. The scriptures are pointing us to what Christ would do. And sure enough, he's saying it here in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he didn't just wasn't beat up and he almost died. But then it's like, I oh, don't final breath. He kind of was able to get it back and walk out of the tomb. And he limped a little bit, but he was OK. No, he, he came back to life. The glorified body, they, they looked at him and they were even like a little confused. Is that Jesus at first? It was something that was different about him. They were, like, and ultimately we know that, I mean, scripture, God was even kind of blinding him at first. Is he walking on, the, on the, the road to Emmaus with the two other disciples? And they're like, are you the only one who hasn't heard of what's been going on? He's like, what things? And it's Jesus talking to him. Like Jesus knows exactly what happened because he experienced it. And then all of a sudden their eyes were opened. And they were like, oh man, how our hearts burned because of that gospel. The gospel that Jesus was died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried 
for three days, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is the Gospel, that Jesus has paid the price for your sins. We are to repent and believe the Gospel. In Acts chapter 20, I'll spend a couple more seconds and I'm going to go faster through baptism and uh, the Lord's Supper. But these two are, I mean, they're all essential, but these are of high importance. In Acts chapter 20, Paul says this in verse 21. Verse 21, he says this, um, in verse 20, how I did, he's like, he's trying to tell these Ephesian elders, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Notice this, verse 21, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of, notice this, of repentance toward God. So turning from your sin and toward God, and notice this, and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there's a connection between repentance and faith. And God, and how do you know if repentance is genuine? Is are you really believing the truths of Scripture? Are you really putting your faith in Christ alone? Because it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of works. It's not about your ability to even turn from your sin. If you're wanting to repent to your, from your sin, that's evidence that you desire to pursue God, and God's giving you that in His grace and in His goodness. Mark 1.15, you don't have to turn there. Jesus in the opening, as he's declaring his public ministry, he says, repent, and he says, therefore the kingdom, of hand, uh, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And then right after that, he says, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. So it's like, what are we to do? We repent of our sins. We put our faith in Christ, and we follow him uh, with our lives. And I would encourage you, maybe there's someone in here, you never know, uh, who's not placed their trust in Christ alone for salvation. I would encourage you to do so if you haven't. Um, put your faith in Christ alone. It is not in your works. Don't put it in your effort. You can't earn it. The only way you're going to uh, pay for your sin is after you die. You can pay for it for all of eternity. You can't earn it in this life. It is only two ways in Christ. Christ being the propitiation that we read earlier in 1 John. So here's the next step. So look at this in baptism. We'll move this kind of quickly. Uh, baptism does not make you a believer. I mean, I, I want to encourage you. I want to make sure you understand this very clearly. Um, it's over and over again, you know, when I ask people like, hey, how did you come to know the Lord? Are you a follower of Jesus? Those kind of things. And some people will point to their baptism as what has saved them. And so I want to make sure this is clear. Baptism does not make you a believer. It demonstrates to others. It's a demonstration. It demonstrates to others what you already have believed. It is important that you realize that baptism does not save you. You probably already filled that in. Uh, does not save you. You are saved only by faith in Christ's completed work in the gospel. You see, again, go back to Ephesians 2, 8, 9. I have it in your, in your notes there. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is, notice this, it's a gift. It's a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. So th- here's what baptism is. Baptism is the first step of obedience after salvation. Baptism is the first step of obedience after salvation. See this in Scripture. You can look up these uh, passages later. I want to keep moving. Um, so what is the meaning then? Okay, so if it's not, it's not a part of salvation, then what is the meaning of baptism? Why is there baptism? A couple things, a couple notes here. One is this. It illustrates Jesus'... First Corinthians 15 
you know, we, we, we looked at that and it's illustrating it perfectly, right? Like, I mean, and uh, the idea of dying, like here's the gospel. Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried and then he rose again. Again, the picture of baptism is illustrating that death with Christ and being buried and coming back right to life, being raised to life in Christ. So it is illustrating the death, burial, and resurrection. Number two, it illustrates my new life as a follower of Jesus. It illustrates my new life as a follower of Jesus. Listen to Romans 6, 4. It says this, We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Again, it illustrates, it illustrates my new life as a follower of Jesus. Number three is this. Every baptism in the Bible that we see in Scripture uh, was by immersion. In Acts chapter 8, um, we, see, we see this in Acts 8, um, uh, starting in verse uh, 30, 38. And 39, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor... Oh, Romans, sorry. Uh, Acts chapter 8, not Romans. Uh, Acts chapter 8. Let me get there really quickly. Looking at verse 38 and 39. Uh, the, the Philip in the this remarkable story of him um, hearing the gospel as he's reading uh, from Isaiah. But in verse 30, and specifically in verse 38 and 39, it says this, and he commanded the chariot. So he just puts his faith in Christ um, and begin it because it tells in verse 35, then Philip opened the mouth, his mouth and beginning with the scriptures, he told him the good news. Again, the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And so they were going along the road and they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Verse 38, and he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up, notice this, look at the descriptions. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way. And we see uh, the, the, the baptism even of Jesus. We see the description there of, of uh, being immersed. Literally the word baptism, I don't have this in your notes, but the word uh, baptism in the Greek, it literally means to immerse. Um, and so that we see the reason like, hey, but there's an abundance of water here. Why not get baptized here as even here in this passage in Acts 8 says. So here's the other description too. Baptism is like a wedding ring. It's the outward symbol of the commitment you make in your heart. So baptism is like a wedding ring. It is the outward symbol of the commitment in your heart, uh, you make in your heart. So there's the one story I tell um, that maybe or maybe not some of you know. Maybe my in-laws know or don't know. I don't know. Uh, but... Um, uh, so when Amanda and I, we were about to get married. So this is almost 15 years ago. And uh, we had ordered our rings and our rings had just come in. Uh, and uh, so this, thankfully, this ring still spits on my finger barely. Um, but this ring here. Uh, and, um, and so her ring had come in and my ring had come in. Uh, we had ordered and uh, we were getting ready to go out to like a nice restaurant. I think it was like Maggiano or something here, probably in Atlanta. And I was like, you know, we weren't married yet. I'm like, hey, why don't we just, why don't we just wear our rings tonight? Like, like we're going, <laughs> why don't we just wear them tonight? You know, you're like, pastor, what are you doing? Sinning. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm being human. Okay, I'm being human. Um, and so, and so, of course, in leading my wife astray, uh, we, we wore our, we, our, our wedding rings that we were not married yet to. And so we, uh, so we go out to eat. And you know what I wanted to do so much? I was just like, every time I saw the waiter, I'm like, I'm not sure what is on the menu. <laughs> today and so I just like kept showing off this ring and I'm like man 
<laughs> pointing out my wife's ring and all these things. Like, all I want to know is people, I want people to think, right, deception, <laughs> sin, uh, people to know that I was, I was married to this woman, even though I was not married to this woman yet. And so, um, and so the reality is, like, this, this ring is, is great and all, but it, all it is is a symbol. So when I was wearing that ring, so like, again, go back to baptism. For those that maybe have been baptized, uh, it's a symbol of something that happens in your heart. But you can look like you're saved, but not be saved. Um, and for me, it's like I can, I can wear this ring. Some of you maybe don't even wear a ring and are married. And, and, and you don't wear the ring. Does that mean all of a sudden, no, no, you're not married anymore. Like, I, know, I took the ring off. I'm not I'm married. Married? Not married. <laughs> right? Like, like, okay, let's just not lose it. Let's put it back on. Um, the, the, the point is this, ma- baptism is a symbol. It symbolizes a, a marriage, uh, a, a marriage. It symbolizes a, a, a relationship with God, something that you have believed in your heart, that you've put your trust in Christ. Baptism just symbolizes it. It's telling the world, even though I was being deceptive that way. And that happens all the time. People get baptized and they think they're a follower of Jesus, but they're not. They're far from, their hearts are far from God, but they, oh, but they've been baptized. Listen, listen, the Bible tells you, you'll know them by their fruit. The Bible tells you to keep, like, live a life of repentance in keeping with a life of repentance. I mean, our lives should be modeled by repenting from our sin. Listen, that's something, I mean, it's silly and we all laugh at that. Like, I needed to repent of that sin. It was, it was sin. I was trying to deceive a waiter and all these people. I led my wife, my, not even my wife yet, my girlfriend or my fiance at the time uh, away. Like, and again, all of that, because it, came a, it became a great illustration. That's why I'm thankful for it. But I'm thankful also for the grace of the Lord to forgive me of all my sins. So, um, but it is, it's a symbol. It symbolizes. It is letting people know, as I was saying early, um, it is illustration of that. It's pointing people. So why should I be baptized? One, quickly, to follow the example set by Christ. First, Mark 1, 9, we see the baptism of Christ. Jesus didn't need to be baptized. There was no need to be baptized. Um, he didn't need to repent. I mean, it's John the Baptist, even there's a different type of baptism than the, the believer's baptism today. John's was a baptism of repentance saying like, hey, I, example of I'm repenting and I'm, I'm preparing the way for uh, Jesus to come. And, but Jesus, he doesn't need to repent of anything. He doesn't need to, um, but he gives us this example of baptism in Mark 1, 9. And then number two is this ultimately because Christ commands it. Matthew 28 What are we to do, right? Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So again, it's commanded by Scripture. Number three, to demonstrate that I really am a believer. Again, it's letting people, notice this, demonstrate, right? It's a symbol. You're letting people know that I'm a follower of Jesus. All right, finally is this, the Lord's Supper. You say, what is exactly the Lord's Supper? Some people use the word communion. What is it? If you, if you turn, actually turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, you probably know this passage because every time people do um, uh, communion, observe communion together as a church, oftentimes this passage is, is read. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24, um, he says this, or verse 23, For I received from the Lord that I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remem- remembrance of me. So that's your first point there. It is a reminder. What is the Lord's Supper? It's a reminder. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus says. And then in verse 25, In the same way also he took the cup and after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, notice this, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
as well. And here it's, it's, we're seeing this, the blood being shed. It is a symbol. It symbolizes what Christ has done. That, his, that He experienced this excruciating suffering through the cross. It is a symbol. And then three is this. It is a statement of faith. It is a statement of faith. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. continuing on. Uh, he says in verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. It is a statement of faith. We're proclaiming our faith in Christ to the world. We're saying, okay, we're attaching ourselves to Christ and we're reminding ourselves of what He's done. Solemn, it's a reminder. And so who should observe the Lord's Supper uh, is this, and finally is this, only those who are believers. Um, verse 29 tells, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you, he says, are weak and ill and some have died. And so the importance, and you say like, why? again, going back to these things, why does this matter? Why, why does all this stuff really matter? Why can't we just joyfully follow Jesus and just sing about him and, and uh, just celebrate him? We want to make sure it's truth. We want to measure what we sing. Is it truth? Is it God's word? Is it, is it describe who God is as scripture describes who God is? Does it point us to the affections and love for God and we do these things because we want to be a people who care deeply about this world. And notice going back to our quote, I want to end with this, going back to the quote I mentioned at the very beginning, Roy Ray Ortland, when the doctrine is clear and the culture uh, when the doctrine is clear and the culture is beautiful, that church will be powerful. And that's what we see as, as people live a spirit filled life. We see that in Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses. We want to be witnesses to this community. We want to reach this community with the gospel. How are we going to do that? We do it with right doctrine. Truth matters. We do it when the doctrine is clear, that people understand who Christ is, what He has done. We understand Scripture is valuable and important. It is reliable. It's inspired by God. We do this when we, we, we observe baptism in the right way. We, we do this when we, when we remember and reflect and think about on what Christ has done by um, uh, observing the Lord's Supper. And so this is my desire is that I want to be a church that's powerful because if we, I want to see a church that is like, man, we've got the doctrine right. And we also have the culture of love and grace. And we're communicating that to the, to the nation and to the world and to the community and the neighborhood, even just this neighborhood right here. Um, but we do that when our doctrine is clear and our culture is beautiful. And so that's, that's my desire for that. And that's really why well, I want you to understand these things. Maybe use these as a tool. It would be a good guide for you to look at some of these scriptures, maybe spend a little more time with them over the next week or so. Um, and I hope it's helpful. We, have a, we do have a, a bigger statement that we'll get to you that, um, later at a later time, but it's our full kind of statement on faith. This is only part of it. We'll continue on the next couple, two more weeks on uh, some of these different things before we move into the building. And so some of you have even asked this, like, okay, well, when should we, like, you know, <laughs> like we're told, I'm, I'm telling you right now, like we should observe the Lord's Supper and we should uh, take communion seriously. One thing I wanted to do was, was this process of working together through what do we believe as a church? Okay, we're going to come together and gather together. I want to make sure we're all on the same page. And then as we move to the building, so hopefully one of the first maybe two weeks uh, once we move in the building to, uh, to observe the Lord's Supper together. And something for us, just to kind of give you a picture of like, what is Redeemer going to look like moving forward. Uh, for us, we'll probably practice it about, we'll just observe it about once a month, um, once a, a series as well, but at least once a month and sometimes maybe even more, but uh, at least once a month to just reflect and remind ourselves on what Christ has done. Uh, for us. So let me pray, and then Walt's going to lead us in, in one last song tonight or this morning. Father, we love you. We thank you for the, your word. Your word is truth. 
God, sanctify us in that truth. God, give us uh, your word. You have given us your word uh, to be our guide, our lamppost. But ultimately, as we were looking earlier, it is to point us to Christ. Uh, help us to see Christ in all, in all Scripture. Help us to, to worship you. Help us to uh, pursue you. God, give us the strength and the ability and the passion and the love uh, to follow you. So help us in all these things. Uh, we thank you. We want to be a church who is powerful. Uh, but we want to do that in the spirit. We looked at it last week. We need to be prayerfully dependent because apart from you, we could do nothing. So we need your help. Uh, and so God, guide us, lead us, uh, help us to make a difference in this community. We love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.